0: Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 18 and go through the end of the book this morning. Throughout Colossians, Paul has been arguing against false teachers who said that if you really want to be spiritual and close to God, you must keep all kinds of rules and regulations, (laughs) like observing special religious days, abstaining from certain foods, worshiping angels, and practicing harsh treatment of the body. But just because we should reject such man-made rules does not not mean there are no God-made rules. Paul says that God's people should put off such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, lying, and filthy language, but should instead be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, loving and thankful. This morning, Paul continues talking about how we should then live by focusing on husbands and wives, fathers and children, and slaves and masters. Some of this could get pretty controversial, so buckle your seatbelt. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, some of this is controversial. So I ask for discernment on the part of your people to know whether I'm interpreting and applying this passage accurately. We also pray that you would give us the will to follow what you would teach us through your word this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most controversial parts of this passage is in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Until relatively recently, this has been interpreted to mean just what it says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. With the women's movement, however, many scholars today would point out that Paul was writing in a very patriarchal culture, and Paul was just encouraging godly Christian women on how to be a good testimony for Christ in that culture. But our culture is different. In Galatians, Paul taught that in Christ there is no male or female. So in our culture, mutual submission between husbands and wives is more appropriate or fitting in the Lord. In other words, these scholars would say that today, husbands and wives should submit to each other. So the question is whether Paul's command to wives in this verse was a cultural thing that could change depending on the culture, or a permanent command, applicable to all times and in all cultures. There are godly biblical scholars on both sides of this debate, and I'm sure I won't solve the issue this morning. But I do want to make a few observations about it. First, I think mutual submission is a good thing. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I know that Sheila has kept me from making a lot of stupid decisions throughout our marriage, and I think that any man who never listens to his wife is a fool. On the other hand, there are times when a decision must be made and the husband and wife cannot come to an agreement. In those cases, I believe it is often fitting in the Lord for the wife to choose to submit to her husband's decision, even if he's wrong. But second, That raises the question, what does Paul mean by as is fitting in the Lord? It could mean that it is fitting or appropriate for a wife to submit to her husband, period. On the other hand, it could also mean wives submit to your husbands only so long as it is fitting or appropriate in the Lord. In other words, If a husband told his wife to become a shoplifter or a prostitute to bring in extra money, she should not submit. That would not be appropriate or fitting in the Lord. Love for God always comes above everything else, even your husband. So if a husband tells his wife to disobey God's commands, she should obey God rather than man. She should only submit as is fitting in the Lord. In my opinion, there are also times when a husband is so irresponsible that a wife should not submit either. For example, if a husband is an alcoholic, or a drug abuser, or a compulsive gambler, or if he's violent with you or the kids. I don't think you should just blindly go along with decisions that would bankrupt the family or hurt the kids. That would not be fitting in the Lord either. Third, the Bible never says... Husbands, force your wives to submit. Sheila and I once knew a guy who told his wife when she could and could not watch TV and what she could and could not watch on TV, and even when she could or could not go shopping. He thought he was obeying Paul's commands, but he wasn't a very good reader. This is not a command to husbands at all. Whether the wife chooses to submit or not is entirely between her and the Lord. In fact, if the husband tries to force his wife to submit, he would most likely be violating the next command in verse 19, which is specifically to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's time, the husband was the absolute ruler of the family. He could even beat his wife if he wanted to, and no one would think anything of it. So, Paul is being counter cultural when he says, Husbands, don't even be harsh with your wives. In Ephesians 5, Paul is more specific. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ is often patient with his church, Christ forgives his church. Christ died for his church. That's how husbands should love their wives. In verse 20, Paul then addresses children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, do you love Jesus? You show that love by obeying your parents, even when you think they are being unreasonable. But parents, Don't get too literal about them obeying in everything. Paul always assumes that love for God comes first above everything else. So if parents were to tell their kids to do something illegal or immoral, God would honor the kids if they obeyed God rather than their parents. On the other hand, verse 21 says, Fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I think Paul addresses this to fathers and not to mothers, because fathers are more prone to embittering their kids than most moms. But it applies to moms, too. So how might you embitter your children or or make them bitter? Well, maybe by deliberately provoking them? Maybe by making unreasonable or arbitrary demands? Maybe by being unnecessarily harsh. Maybe by not following through with your promises. Maybe maybe by calling them names or criticizing them in ways that tear them down rather than building them up. I'm sure there are dozens of ways fathers unnecessarily make their children bitter. Paul says, don't do it. In verse 22, Paul says, Slaves, obey your your earthly masters in everything. Now, once again, I think Paul always assumes the greatest commandment comes first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So if masters commanded their slaves to behave in an illegal, immoral, or ungodly ways, slaves are not required by God to obey, though they may face severe consequences from their ungodly masters. Otherwise, Paul tells slaves to obey. And he adds in verse 22, do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, don't work just because you have to. Work hard and conscientiously because of your love and reverence for Christ. And do it even when the boss is not watching The practical application is obvious. Christians should be among the best workers a company has because they should be working as if they were working for Jesus himself. In chapter four, verse one, Paul says, masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul lived in a culture in which slavery was accepted by pretty much everyone even by the slaves. That doesn't mean slave liked it, but no one challenged the system. Slavery was seen as the way life was and had been for thousands of years. And in that system, Paul says masters need to provide for their slaves what is right and and fair. I think that implies that masters should not oppress their slaves and should not keep them in run-down, dilapidated shacks or feed them bare subsistence diets. That is neither right nor fair. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. Most slave owners, on the other hand, would probably have seen this as radically countercultural. The application for today is that Christian should employers should provide for your employees what is right and fair, knowing that you will one day give account to your boss who is in heaven. But these verses raise the question, was Paul condoning slavery? You'll have to wait until next week to hear my answer. Before we go on to the book of Judges, I want to cover the book of Philemon next week. That's because Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. So Colossians and Philemon go together. And Philemon was a slaveholder. So I'll talk more about slavery next week. In verse 2, Paul urges his readers to... Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devoting themselves to prayer and being thankful are pretty much self explanatory. But what does Paul mean by being watchful? Watchful of what? Well, since we are always to watch for the coming of the Lord and to behave accordingly, that could be what Paul is saying here. On the other hand, Paul may be saying that they need to be watchful in the sense of being discerning and on the alert for false teachers, like the ones who are trying to deceive them. And actually, we should do both. In verse 3 and in verse 18, Paul mentions that he is in chains, most likely in a Roman prison. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul has two specific prayer requests for himself. Now, if I were in prison, one of the top items on my prayer request list would be that the Lord would get me out of here. It's fascinating that Paul doesn't even mention that. In verse 3, Paul asks for prayer that God would open a door of opportunity for him to proclaim the gospel. Paul is more concerned that the gospel be proclaimed than he is about his own personal freedom. In verse 4, Paul's second prayer request is that he would be able to proclaim the gospel clearly. Whether Paul, Paul is free or in prison, his primary concern is to make Jesus known. The application for us today is that in whatever situation we find ourselves, our primary concern should not necessarily be getting out of it. But how can I use this situation to glorify the Lord through it? In verse 5, Paul goes back to giving general instructions on how we should then live. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. By outsiders, he means non-Christians, of course. We should pray for wisdom in how we relate to non-Christians and that we would make the most of every opportunity. I have often prayed that God would give me opportunity to talk about him and that I wouldn't blow it. (laughs) Sadly, I must confess that there have been many times when I did blow it by not recognizing or taking advantage of the opportunity. But how do you do that? In verse 6, Paul says, To let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When we interpret this, we have to remember that this is the same Paul who, according to Acts 13, was filled with the Holy Spirit when he turned on a sorcerer who was opposing the gospel and said to him, you son of the devil, you enemy of everything that is right, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. That's not exactly gracious speech, is it? But Paul was not a hypocrite. In verse 5, Paul says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Probably 99% of the time, that involves being gracious and gentle in our conversations with unbelievers. But there may be rare times when a harsh answer is called for. When you are talking to someone who is open to discussion, a calm, gracious, reasonable discussion is usually appropriate. But sometimes, for example, when you encounter someone advocating for pure evil, like pedophilia, or sexual mutilation of children, and they are not open to reasonable discussion, a harsh rebuke and condemnation may be called for. It takes a lot of wisdom to know when to be gracious and when to rebuke. If there's any doubt at all, let your conversation be always filled with grace, seasoned with salt. When Paul says our conversation should be seasoned with salt, He is probably referring to the fact that in ancient times, as today, one use of salt was to improve the taste of food. Salt also has the effect of making people thirsty. So ideally, we should strive to talk to people about the Lord in a way that is appetizing, so to speak. And so people will be thirsty to hear more. In verses 7 to 9, Paul says he's sending Tychicus to them to encourage them and to tell them more about what's happening with Paul. Tychicus is probably the one who delivered this letter to the Colossians. Paul says that Tychicus is coming with Onesimus. Tychicus was sent with two letters, one to the Colossian church and the other to Philemon, a member of the Colossian church. In that letter to Philemon, Paul advocates for Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. And we'll talk more about that next week. In verses 10 through 18, Paul closes by sending some personal greetings from Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Aristarchus was one of Paul's traveling companions. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, was the author of the Gospel of Mark. We don't know anything about Jesus who is called Justice other than the fact that Jesus was a pretty common name. Epaphras was a prayer warrior from the town of Colossae. He's probably the one who planted the church there. He, is also, he also had a ministry in nearby Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the doctor, is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And sadly, we find out in 2 Timothy that Demas' love for the world would one day lead him to desert Paul. So in verse 15, Paul tells the Colossians to give his greetings to believers in Laodicea and to a lady named Nympha, who had opened her house to the church. Like Lydia, who opened her house to the church in Philippi, Nympha must have been a wealthy woman, wealthy enough to have a home large enough to accommodate even a small church in those days. Then in verse 16, Paul adds that after the Colossians read this letter, they should share it with the church in Laodicea. And that the Colossians should read the letter Paul wrote to Laodicea. Someone once said that we shouldn't read Paul's letters because they were his personal correspondence. Nonsense. Paul intended his letters to be read by others. In verse 17, Paul says, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Now, we learn from Paul's little letter to Philemon that the, Colossian, the church in Colossae met in the home of Archippus. My guess is that he was the pastor. I wonder if the false teachers were causing him strife and stress because Paul seems to be telling him to hang in there and don't give up. Complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Paul closes in verse 18, saying that he writes his greeting in his own hand. Paul's practice was to dictate his letters to a secretary called an amanuensis and to write the final greeting in his own hand so recipients could recognize Paul's handwriting and know it was really from Paul. Let me just close this morning with some lessons from Colossians as a whole. First, be wary of well-meaning Christians who want to impose man-made rules of spirituality on you. Things like, Don't dance, don't go to movies, don't play cards, but do follow spiritual disciplines like journaling and meditating, accountability, observing times of silence or solitude. Some of these things may be good suggestions, but when people start looking down their noses at others who won't go along with their man-made rules, they fall under Paul's condemnation. And second, just because we're not required to follow man-made rules That doesn't mean there are no God-made rules. Paul says put to death such things as sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, greed, lying, filthy language, which may include abusive language. Instead, be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be patient, be loving, be thankful. And forgive each other. Third, the husband-wife relationship in scripture is very controversial. My personal opinion is that Paul's command for wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them involves mutual submission, talking and working things out, putting up with each other's personality issues and forgiving each other. But if an agreement cannot be attained, Paul says that wives should make the choice, out of reverence for Christ, to submit to their husbands. But only as is fitting or appropriate in the Lord. In other words, God always comes first. Fourth, Paul's admonition to slaves and masters has application to employers and employees today. Employees should work as if they were working directly for Jesus himself. Employers should treat their employees fairly and justly, knowing that the employer will one day have to give account to their own boss who is in heaven. And finally, Paul says to devote yourself to prayer and be wise and gracious in your conversation with unbelievers, making the most of every opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, help us put into practice what you have to say to us from the book of Colossians. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.